Hi. I don't know why this is taking me so long. Hello. Welcome to Porter Creek Church, Arlington. I need my papers just right. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 is where we're going to be. So you can open up there. We have some Bibles in the back. If you need, um, feel free to take that. Um, It's been almost two years. It'll be two years this October that 12 people from this church left. We sent them uh, to start an evening service, a campus in Clarendon, in our office, led by Elder and Pastor Steve Reed. So him and his wife left and those 12 people. I preached at that evening service last Sunday. As you know, Steve and I will trade. Sometimes he'll preach both services. Sometimes I'll preach both services. So last Sunday, I was over there at the Clarendon campus, 5 o'clock, preaching the same sermon that I preached here. Um, There's 50 people there. The place is popping. Yeah. So we, we planted this church because we like to do that. We wanted to see the gospel grow in service area. Uh, they're baptizing like two or three people this week. It's, it's kind of out of control. So I, I want to encourage you because every single person in this room, especially if you were here um, when that happened or sometime along the way, you are responsible for that in helping in prayer and being a part of that. Um, and news... October 20th will be their first service where they are an autonomous church. They will no longer be a portico church. Uh, They have chosen the name Doxology. Um, Go ahead, laugh it up. I know. We're like, what? Okay, your church. Doxology, the idea is that doxology means praise. So all of life is worship. And they are passionate about seeing every sphere of life, whether it's work, whether it's family, uh, whether it's having fun, recreation, whatever it is, that it comes under the lordship of Christ and it's an act of worship. So October 20th um, is their launch date, and we're so excited. So I just wanted to tell you that you've been a part of it. We don't see them very often because, you know, they're just not here. But God is doing an amazing work work, and so just be encouraged by that. Um, you, you know, when I preached over there, they're more spiritual than us, too, because I preached. You know what they do during the Philippian service? They've all memorized the Christ hymn, which is the theological center of this book. It's chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourself, yours in Christ Jesus. So Steve says, can you take us through the memory verse? I'm like, what are you talking about? They all know it by memory, and so I had to pretend that I knew it by memory while looking at my book, or the Bible. So um, they're, just, they're just really doing really well. So as we think about that, and we think about how excited we are for that church, hey, let me ask you an awkward question. Almost every question I ask you is awkward. How, how important is this church to you? Like, specifically, how important is the future of this church to you? Um, is it something that you need? Is it something that you're invested in? If this church goes away, is it going to be a big deal for you? Is it just like move on to the next thing or the next church? There's a lot of good churches around. Um, how important is the future of Portico Church? Is it worth fighting for? Because there's a lot of reasons we come to church, and I'm not picking on anybody because I've found myself in every one of these categories at one point in time. Um, sometimes we come to church just to find friends. It's not a bad reason. It's not what the church exists for, but there should be good friends here. Uh, sometimes we come because we feel like it kind of lines up with our personal agenda and the way we like to see life go forward. Okay, um, that's something. What about this? You just need to hide from a scary world as a Christian. 
and like I just need to be around my people, and like nobody understands me at work, and okay, um, get spiritually charged up. That's a good thing. Or maybe just find some stability in a world that seems to be just disintegrating. If this is why you come here, if we disappear, you'll be okay. Because you can actually get these things other places. Listen, here's something I realized. The Philippian church that Paul's writing to is 10 years old. Do you know how old we are? Almost 10. Not even a trick question. Almost, we are right there with them. This is the second church that we have planted. Something happens to a church as they age, as they get out of the adolescent stage, and they start to hit their goals, and God gives them success. Um, It's really, really easy to forget why you exist as a church. In fact, the longer you exist, the harder it is to imagine why we're here have a common vision for what we're doing and where we're going. I know this is true. I know this is true for us. I knew this is true for this Philippian church who is having issues of conflict, retreating into just the self-centered contention. And quite frankly, it was just too hard. Like, we've done this, Paul. We've run this race. We've pounded this out. You're in jail. We're by ourselves. we got people coming in here trying to destroy this place. I don't know. Is it worth it? Is it worth fighting for? Listen, the, the text that we're going to go through today, Paul is finishing up his letter, and he says, fight for this. Fight for this. Philippian church, fight for this. This is how you last. This is how you endure. You fight for these things. As Pastor Reeve was saying, you fight for unity. right? You fight for joy. you got to do this. And you fight to have a unified mind that is not just aligned together, but aligned with the Lord. So we're going to see this today. Um, The text is going to teach us what to fight for, because it matters. It matters. Uh, I'm not going to pre-read the text. We're just going to let the text narrate itself today. Um, But this is what we're going to look at, what it means for us together. And God has blessed us, friends. And doxology is just one more chapter in that. We need, we've grown up all the way. We need to learn how to finish well. We need to learn how to fight for unity. Oh, pastor, is there some disunity in the church? No. It's just in the text. But it's gonna, someday there will be. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a church where there was disunity. Okay, the rest of you are lying. I'm just kidding, you're not. It happens, friends. How we learn how to deal with conflict in real time, man, it needs, you know, and It's so painful sometimes. Fight for unity, fight for joy in the Lord, and those two are tied together, and fight for a common mind that is aligned with God, right? That is aligned with Him. So let's pray, and we're going to jump in and see how this unfolds for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Um, I thank you for doxology. I am so, so proud. I'm so proud of everyone over there, Lord. You've done such a great job of, of blessing them and letting us be a part of that. Um, Thank you so much. God, we give you honor and praise for that. As we come before you, Lord, we belong to you. This is your church. This is your word. We expect to hear from you this morning as we open up your word. Lord, would you teach us what it means to fight, what it means to fight well, to fight for unity, to fight for one another, Lord Jesus. Um, Yeah, and to fight for joy, the joy that we want. 
and just to fight to stay common, Lord, in our minds. So I just pray these things, and we ask that you would open up your word that we might behold its beauty. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, as we jump into this text, I want to give you a couple things to think about as we walk through. First, he's going to talk about three things, right? He's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about joy and a mind that's aligned with the Lord. Here's a category to think through. It's kind of, he's, he's hitting the whole thing. It's talking about a whole life. He's talking about uh, the relationships that you have. So your relational life. He's talking about your emotional life because he's going to talk about rejoicing in the Lord as a command. And he's also going to talk about your intellectual life, what you think about. All these things are related. You cannot separate them. But he hits, as he's wrapping up his letter, he hits all of them together, which I really appreciate. Now, it's going to sound like, in fact, when I first read this text, it feels like it's a bunch of loosely related items. And I guess in one way it is. He's kind of wrapping up the letter, so we get that. But he's kind of saying, he's revisiting some of the things that he's already hit. And he's saying, this is what matters most. This is what you need to fight for. If I never make it back to Philippi, if I never get out of Rome and make it down to Macedonia, here's what you need to know. Jesus is enough. Fight for these things and you will do well. God will get glory through your church. So this is what he's shooting for. This is what he wants us to know. Fight for these things. So I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. It says, And I entreat Eudea, and I entreat Sentuke to agree in the Lord. yes. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And he's called out some people. I've got some names on here too. I need some people to, to reconcile in this church. Can I do that? Just kidding. But do you understand the heat Man, he loves some people. Do you realize that this letter was actually read to the Philippian church in public? Paul would communicate to them. This was publicly read aloud. Eudea and Sentuke would have been there. Clement would have been there. That's love in action. So bottom line, these are two women. They're true sisters in the Lord. They belong to this church. They're proven leaders in the Philippian church. Paul calls them co-workers in the gospel. They have laid their lives down. Were they there in the beginning? I don't know. There's no way for us to know. But it sure feels like it. They were part of that initial pack when Paul shows up 10 years ago and he baptized Lydia and a few others that were meeting down by the river. And this church begins... But there's division. And they love the Lord. And the division was enough that Paul heard about it in Rome. Fight for unity. So so what is unity? How do we do that? Well, here's what it's not. It's not forced affirmation or false peace. You cannot build unity on who you vote for in 2020. You cannot build unity on preferences that you have. It will never last. You cannot build unity on the type of songs that you like to sing. That does not last because you're going to change. And you can't build unity by ignoring the fact that you have division. I probably imagine these were mature Christian women who just knew that they had serious disagreement and they just weren't dealing with it. 
That's called false peace. Everybody knows it doesn't work, but it's very common in churches. See, unity requires actual relationships where there's not just proximity, we're not just in the same room. There's real intimacy where I know you and you know me. And we have enough relational capital where you can speak into my life and I will listen to you and vice versa. So unity is not forced affirmation, requires actual relationships. And listen to what he's asking them to do. He says, agree, agree in the Lord. What does this mean? It means think the same thing. It means be of one mind, have a common mind in this area. So agree in the Lord. Let's, let's talk about this unity. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, because if it doesn't mean just preferences, what could it mean? Here's what he's getting at. Hey, you guys are true sisters. You are true sisters. When you belong to God, and you've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, both of you, Iudea and Sintuke, you both belong to the Lord together. You are true sisters. Jesus is very clear in Mark 3. His family, his definition of family wasn't blood. It was his brothers and his sisters and his mom, those who did the will of God, those who were with him in Christ. So they are true sisters. The text says their names are in the book of life. So unity depends on this truth. You're reconciled to God. If you're in Christ, if you have faith in him, you have got to understand the relationships that you have in the church, both local and global, are as they're like blood. Now, there's people in your family that you would honor, like your crazy uncle, and maybe you can't stand them, but you still love them, and you still you work with them, and you fight for them. That's how family works. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to be your best friend, and it doesn't mean that you're going to like everybody. So it doesn't. Unity doesn't mean I like every single person. Some people might irritate me. Man, man I love them in Christ. We are joined together in Christ. I don't understand why they think that way. But we are joined together. So live like true sisters. Secondly, there's a posture of humility if we're going to have unity in the Lord. Um, Have you ever been to a party where, (laughs) this is awkward, why would I even say this? You went to a party where there was just not very many hors d'oeuvres but a lot of people and everybody's starving? You kind of got to get to the table quick, right? And it's not fun and everybody's hungry and everybody's grouchy. That's not how God works. When you're in Christ, when you've been lavished with grace, it's like going to a party where, you know, this, this person is like extremely rich. Your car is parked for you. They usher you, your name's on a list. You walk in and somebody hands you a drink before you even, they take your coat. You, there's orders everywhere. You, you know the last thing you're worried about? Fighting for hors d'oeuvres. And what happens is you become generous in spirit, when grace has hit you. And you become humble and you don't insist on things and you don't fight for things. You have this mind in yourself. You don't grasp at things. You've been blessed in the Lord. You have everything in the Lord. Do nothing from self- selfish ambition or conceit. Count others more significant than yourselves. So humility, humility doesn't just count on the fact that you are unified to Christ and together You've got to have a posture of humility. You've got to let go of your preferences because they don't matter. They matter to you, and that's fine, but they don't matter to unity. Posture of humility, and second, or last, mutual submission. This is so big. The Bible talks about submission all the time. Submission assumes unity. Did you know that? 
So if we're going to fight for unity, Euodia and Sintuke, they've got to do two things. First, they've got to mutually submit to the Lord, which makes sense. He's Lord. He loves them. They've got to mutually submit to his word. And sometimes that takes care of the conflict. And they've got to mutually submit to one another out of love. And their church, whoever's going to help them work through this together. So that, that's, how, that's what Paul means when he says, agree in the Lord, these women who he loves. So, yes, fighting for unity, that's what unity is. And, and whose business is this? Well, he just called them out publicly. It's everybody's business. Unity in this church is your business. It's my business. It's everybody's, per- everybody's business. Um, yeah. And it takes people. Sometimes there's going to be a sharp disagreement, and you've got to get somebody involved in that conflict. Um, there's been some churches I've been a part of where people just run around telling people what to do, and it's not fun, right? You guys are not that church. You're on the extreme opposite end of that. Generally speaking, don't let the strength of your words exceed the strength of the relationship you have with that person. So have relationships, have real relationships. Um, This is so, so important. Fight for unity in the Lord. Don't fight for the color of the carpet. Fight for unity in the Lord. Fight for people. When you see disunity, get in on that. Well, I don't want to be a meddler. No, you just don't want to deal with the conflict. Everybody hates it. I don't like it either, right? Fight for unity. Um, That verse that Pastor Reeve read, Psalm 133, it's a weird verse. Can we just read it again? There's oil dripping down on a beard. What's that all about? Um, It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Okay? It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded blessing and life forevermore. Do you know what's going on here? Real briefly, um, what it's talking about is sacred anointing oil. Um, it's in Exodus somewhere, Exodus 30. In Exodus 30, God gives a recipe for this consecration oil. It's olive oil that has cinnamon and uh, cassia in it and some other amazing things. Uh, I'm not going to go there, but sweet cane, myrrh. It's extremely fragrant. It's very expensive to make. And God gives very specific instructions on how to make this oil. And the purpose of, and it smells amazing. The purpose of this oil is to, to anoint the tabernacle, to anoint the, the Ark of the Covenant, to anoint the place where God would meet with his people. And Aaron was the high priest, so he would get anointed as well. And they wouldn't do like a little cross on the head. Why would they do that in the Old Testament, right? But they just poured the whole thing on him. So it was like an overabundance of the Spirit of God on this man to serve as high priest who would, who would image Christ, who lovingly deals with our sin. All right, so imagine that. If you're an Israel, if you're a Hebrew, if you're an Israelite, when you smelled that, oh, you knew what it meant. God's here. He's going to meet with us. He's going to lovingly deal with our sin. He's got us. This sacred oil was so important. If you made it, it was like contraband. It was only for the temple, only for the priests. 
if you were caught making it, because everybody, you know, they could hear the word, they could write down the recipe, you'd be cut off from Israel. So what kind of unity is this? It's beautiful. Unity like this is a sacred part of your life. It is not common. And God will use it as a super blessing in your life. Like dew on Mount Hermon. You know, in Palestine at this time, May through October, really dry. Mount Hermon was known for moisture. For whatever reason, it would get lots of dew. This is life. This is life-giving. This is life-giving living water. This is life-giving unity. It smells good. When you walk in the room, you smell it. Like that memory just pops for them. So this is how God sees unity. This is why we fight for it. It smells beautiful. So fight for that. Fight for that. Hey, let me ask you an awkward question again. Do you think you're a threat to unity here? You are. You are, you are the threat to unity. I am the threat to unity. When I, don't, when I don't yield to the Spirit of God, when I don't deal with conflict well, when I live in false peace with others, yeah, yeah, you get the idea. So fight first and foremost for unity. Okay, we're going to move on. We could do a whole sermon there, but we're going to talk about three different things. You can read about them more later. But remember, he's giving us a list of what we fight for. Picking up in verse 7. No, that's wrong. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all the understanding, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's a powerful verse before. You've probably read it. It gives me encouragement all the time. In context, Paul's saying, fight for this, right? Don't just fight for unity. Fight for joy in the Lord. It's a command. It's a moral category. He's not saying, I hope you have joy. He's saying, rejoice. Actually, let me tell you that again, because I don't think you heard it in the back. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. He's giving a command here. So how do we do that? Well, let me ask you this. Are you committed to your own happiness? Like, oh no, I'm in church. I'm supposed to say no, because Christians are supposed to be miserable. Are you committed to just are you committed to your own happiness? Of course you are. It matters to you because you were created by God to be in relationship with Him, which is the source of delight and joy. You're built for it. You will look for something greater than yourself. You're built for happiness and joy. George Mueller, um, he's a 19th century cat. Um, He was in England, and he was known for this one thing. He took care of so many orphans. He had a radical conversion. For whatever reason, God just put orphans on his heart, and he loved them and served them. Listen to this from him. Listen to this little quote. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. He's like, this matters first, that my soul is actually satisfied, filled, 
full, happy in the Lord. What if that was self-care? What if the first thing that I understood in the morning is that I need to anchor my happiness and my delight to the Lord? I want, I want to, to foster this in my own soul. So let's talk about joy and rejoicing. What is joy? I'm not going to tell you what joy is. It's hard to explain. I'm going to give you a category to think in. And here's the category. Anything that can be taken from you is not your joy. Joy is the exact opposite of that. Joy is possession. It's something that you delight in that can never be taken from you. Because if it's something that can be taken from you eventually, and you love it, eventually it's going to cause anxiety and fear and frustration because at the end, everything is taken from you. So joy is different than what we call happiness, although happiness and joy in the Bible really don't make much of a distinction. We do. We probably should. Uh, because for us, happiness is pretty much experience and pleasure, and that's good. But joy is something that cannot be taken from you. Understand that. So what do you possess that cannot be taken from you? Your health? Nope. Your job? Nope. Your reputation? Nope. Your spouse? Nope. Your family? Nope. Your car? Nope. Everything you have, you're going to lose. If you're bold enough to look down the tunnel, you'll see the Grim Reaper coming from you. You will lose everything. Everybody's going to lose everything. Everything. So what do you possess that you're not going to lose? What you possess is the grace of God. You possess God himself. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm untouchable. If God is your portion forever, if that is true of you in Christ, that is true of us, your joy is set and secure. Well, I don't feel happy. Okay, we can talk about that, and that does matter. But that's why you can suffer and be suffering miserably and still have joy, because God cannot be taken away from you. So know that. It's possession. It's possession. Um. Joy is not dependent on your circumstances. Happiness is. Joy isn't. But joy works itself into your circumstances. It always does. It always does. So let's talk about. So what is rejoicing the Lord? So if, if joy is, is not my experience, but it's what can't be taken from me, it's my possession in life, which is God himself through faith, what is rejoicing? So what is Paul getting at? Well, rejoicing is intentionally experiencing what you possess. Like, wait a minute, you just told me that joy can't be my experience. Yeah, it is. It has to be. Rejoicing is actively and in an ongoing fashion experiencing the blessing and the goodness that God gives you of himself. It's enjoying your possession. It's, it's walking in your portion forever. Do you see how that works? Experience does matter, but you cannot anchor your joy in experience. Except this, what you possess, God himself. So when, God, when Paul's telling us to rejoice, by the way, he's in jail in Rome, going to die soon. And he's the happiest guy, apparently. 
Well, he is so absolutely confident that he belongs to the living God and he's coming back for him. And he is safe and he is secure. So he makes it his life to intentionally engage and experience this possession that he has, which is Christ himself. So if you're serious about joy and rejoicing, you will find ways, creative ways, to, to, to engage the possession, engage the faith, engage the eternity, engage all the blessings God has given you in himself. A few ways we can do that. Well, communicate. It's a relationship. Christianity is not about, well, I've learned the rules of life, and if I do them well, God might save me. No, no. You've met the living Lord, and he's given you himself. He's redeemed you, as we say. So communicate. It's a relationship. The gospel is about a relationship between you and God and you and his people. So do you know how relationships work? They gotta, you got to talk. Somebody's got to reveal themselves and somebody's got to listen and vice versa. That's called the word and prayer. It's a feedback cycle. God speaks to us through his word. He's doing it now. He can do it in Bible study. You can open up your Bible and read it yourself. He speaks to you and you pray. It's back and forth. You're learning how to talk to your Lord. Right? So that's part of rejoicing. Suffering. It's part of rejoicing. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, let me tell you this. Um, I know some people, and I know some people that have suffered. And when, you, when somebody has suffered significantly, if, if you don't know about their suffering, you don't really know them. Scripture is very clear. We know Christ through our suffering. <laughs> When we suffer, and it, doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be for being a Christian. It could just be any kind of suffering. When we share in that, we're actually understanding Christ. We're growing in our relationship with Christ. If we're doing it for her sake, if we're doing it in faith, right? And so as a covenant community, as the people of God, we can actually be honest about our sorrow. And we can feel it deeply and intensely and honestly and safely. Because, well, the meaning of life isn't just experience and happiness, because if it is, suffering takes away your meaning. Now, I have my meaning. I belong to the living God. Even in Philippians, it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Paul doesn't want to suffer, but he knows in suffering, he's actually growing in intimacy with Jesus and the spirit of God. Jesus gives you his spirit. He pours out the spirit of God in you and among us. And you do realize that's the power of God in his presence. So when you're in relationship, you want to be in proximity. So you need to seek the spirit. You need to ask for the infilling. You need to yield to the spirit of God, right? Um, yes. And the scripture here talks a little bit about anxiety. It, it's just functional atheism. I'm just going to say that. Like, well, I, it, and anxiety can come on you for many reasons. Okay, I mean, there's PTSD. It's not your fault. There's a lot of reasons we have anxiety. So it's, forget about whose fault it is. That's the wrong question. What are you doing with it? So prayer, praise just makes anxiety suffocate. We see this. The Lord is at hand. He's here, right? He's close to the brokenhearted. And oh, by the way, he's coming back. So he's, don't being anxious, but pray with thanksgiving to God, vertical, and you'll experience peace, right? The Lord is at hand. Um, The idea of peace here is that you're with God, you're in his presence, and you ain't afraid, I'm, awe, yes, 
but you don't fear rejection. That's, that's shalom. That's wholeness in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the kind of peace that you want. You cannot have it by withdrawing from people and withdrawing from God. You have it in God. So fight for this, right? We are called to fight this fight, and it's going to be so hard. You've got to fight for joy, and we have to fight for one another's joy. And unity and joy are really just anchored together in, in, in profound ways. And off we go to verse 8, and it, it gives a little bit more information on that. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put them in your head. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Walk in step with the Spirit. And if you need to get started, imitate me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul knew that he probably would never come back. He's focusing their eyes there. So you need to fight for just a mind that's aligned with the Lord. There's a long line. I don't know if you've been watching the news cycle. There's a long line of Christian celebrities lately. And I have to be careful, but I don't. They're lusting after your attention. And they want your affirmation. And the way they do that, and we all do, so I'm not casting stones, by being real and teaching and talking about these deconversion stories, how they realize that, well, the gospel's not really true. And they're, they're hitting all the news cycles. You're all, here's why I say that. You're going to be so tempted to let go of truth and to not align your mind with God's mind, to relieve pain, to relieve confusion, to relieve fear, to relieve heartache. You're going to be like, I, I can't believe that in the Bible. I cannot align myself with God there. Um, just this week, I was in my office, and pastors were there, and I just have had a lot of anxiety <laughs> this last week. And it's a kind of free-floating anxiety where you don't know why, and that's kind of anxiety, right? Just in your stomach, and you're like, I don't know why I feel it, physiological effects of it. I just told the dudes, I'm like, yeah, I don't know, I got anxiety. And one of the pastors was so bold to say, no, you don't, you're afraid. I'm like, you're afraid. I'm afraid. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> I, don't, I think he shocked himself. He's like, no, you're afraid. You're afraid of not achieving what you want to achieve, and you're afraid of not succeeding. I said, yes, I am. And he goes on to say, you cannot fear anything and fear God at the same time. You need to pick one. And he knows me. Right? He knows me. He knows my heart. Did I feel rebuked? Yeah, a little bit. Did I feel loved and energized? Oh, wow. Did, it, did, it, did the Lord work through that? It was prophetic. It was prophetic. He aligned my mind with the Lord like that. Like that. Listen, the way you think, what captivates your mind will drive your life right now. So this is so practical. Think on what is good, what God has done in your life, what God is doing in your life, what is excellent, what is pure, how he's worked. Yeah, but what if, forget about the what if. You don't control it. Think about what is in Christ. 
Think about that. Put that in your head, right? Renewal of your mind. We're, we're to be transformed by that. Um, I know that we have a lot of dogs in the city, but when you're out in the country and you have a dog, like a farm dog, and you have like a bone, and you give like there's a bunch of dogs, and you give one of them a bone, you know what he does? He runs. He runs because he knows everybody's going to fight him for it. He's terrified of losing that. We live like this all the time. It's called functional atheism. We do not believe that God sees us or give us what we need. And we need God. We need the Spirit. We need His Word. We need people in our church, in our covenant community, to push us along and align our mind with the Lord that we might have peace. We need to fight for this. So what what is captivating your mind? Um, let me finish here with Revelation 7. I want you to sh- I'm going to show you what Jesus fought for and is fighting for right now. Listen to this. I read this about once a month to you because it's so good. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. He's got that. You know what this is? This is a trailer for what's coming down the line. Let the weight of that hit you so much. This is what Jesus fought for. He takes your sin, he takes your fear, he takes your shame, but not if you don't give it to him. Are you trusting in him? And if you've got anxiety, praise God. I'm not joking. If you've got depression, praise God. It's awful. Let it push you, push you to God. Tell somebody, get help. Do all all the graces, all the graces, but do not ignore God. He's there, right? Jesus fights for you in this. So how important is the future of this church? This is a good time for us to think about that. Um, So I'm just going to ask you to do this. Get in the fight. I'm looking at a room full of amazing people who know the Lord. God has gifted you. Take ownership of this future. And I'm going to just three, I'm going to talk to three age groups in here. Um, If you're in your early 20s, we don't know what to call you yet. We don't. They, they haven't named you yet. So, <laughs> You have so, so much to offer the church. You don't, you don't think you do? God is going to work in your generation like never before. But you have to understand this. Information will not overcome the darkness. It's never going to happen. What you know is not going to save you. Jesus is eternal. Right? When the church, when, when Jesus, the cost of Jesus, when following him is very costly, do not run. Do not run. Stay put, hold tight. Now, millennials, if you're over 24 to 38, that's where I'm at. <laughs> Are we doing a social experiment? No. I'm just being real, right? There's stages in life. Hey, do not let your hard won experience go to waste. You guys are learning to suffer, but the church is just not your wine club, okay? It's not just where you get charged up. You have got to get in the game and be an influencer. To who? 
to me, to people around you, to the generation coming up. Take your eyes off yourself and see what God wants to do with you, right? Jesus is your peace. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And for the old heads, hey, if you've decided to kick back and say, you know, I put my time in. Your joy is absolutely doomed. Right? Jesus is your life. Know that. Jesus is your life. And get in the fight. So this is all of our call. Fight for unity in the Lord. Join the Lord. And a mind aligned with the Lord. Let's trust him for that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, you are so, so good to us. Lord, every week is a bucket of fears, successes, wins, failures, pain, pleasure. Lord, I pray that we would surrender to you fully, no matter what, no matter what it means to belong to you or what it means to be this church in this city. God, would you pour out your grace on us? Would you pour out the Spirit of God on us? Would you build up your church? Would you bring those who are holding back, Lord, to full surrender, to full faith? Would you continue to bestow gifts on us that we might see your name praised in worship, Lord, in our church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, and in our city, Lord Jesus? We ask for it. Please hear it. We fight for this, Lord but you're the warrior, so we lift it up in the name of Jesus. Amen.